Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 195 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at Central Bedfordshire Council. We also have news that NHS Digital has been found to be releasing data to high-risk organisations. And then we travel to Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon is refusing to answer questions in the Scottish Parliament due to GDPR. We then also have news that during the pandemic, the ICO has cut its spending by £1.2 million. We then travel to Costa Rica, where the whole country of Costa Rica has declared a state of emergency after Conti ransomware attack. We then travel to Poland, where the Polish DPA has fined data controller £890,000 for not checking the GDPR status and compliance of one of its data processors. We then return to the UK, where the UK government has announced the data reform bill in this week's Queen's speech. And then we travel to Canada, where the Ontario Provincial Police are investigating the Ontario Cannabis Store data breach. We then travel to New Zealand, where AA Traveller has apologised after a data breach. And then to South Africa, where pharmacy chain Discam has had a data breach. We then travel to America, where there's a class action after the solar winds data breach. And then to India, where industry is pushing back against the six-hour data breach reporting rule, which has been introduced, as we reported in last week's episode of the GDPR Week Show. We then travel to the USA, where the city of Cincinnati has had a data breach. And we then return to the UK, where optionists are denying any liability for the Parasol data breach. And finally this week, we travel to Greece, where the Greek Transparency Agency had to withdraw a report after it discovered that information in the report had not been redacted. So as always, a wide range of articles for you this week. We do hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gtrweeklyshow.com. We love receiving your feedback and we do read every single piece of feedback we receive. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. Central Bedfordshire Council has apologised to everyone affected after it published the names of dozens of special educational needs and disabilities children online. Independent councillors had warned the council a year ago that its practices weren't up to scratch according to their social media posts. Special educational needs and disabilities, parents and children lined up 52 pairs of shoes in a protest outside of Central Bedfordshire Council's headquarters at Chicksands in September 2021 as the local authorities struggled to find places for that number of special needs children. The latest speech occurred after a parent asked the council to provide the number of special needs children without school places for this September. Council officers then managed to post a list of all the SEND children on a public website, whatdotheyknow.com, from where they've since been removed. Independent Aspley and Woburn councillor John Baker posted on social media to say, a year ago I wrote to CBC after it sent a parent confidential information about their child via a public web link which would be valid for 15 days. I told the council this link should have been password protected at the very least. Central Bedfordshire Council has also acknowledged there was a further data breach in the first three months of this year. It's hugely frustrating for such warnings to go ignored. Furthermore, the local authorities become familiar with fines for its children's services department. I understand that there have been fines of more than £12,000 since the last two years alone. When independent councillors spoke to the council about the breach, we were told by its chief executive, Marcel Cafe, 
this is very concerning. I've instructed an investigator into what's happened and I've also referred the incident to our data protection officer who has a duty to report issues to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. Parents have also reported the data breach to the ICO, added Councillor Baker. At this stage, it is not known if Central Bedfordshire Council will be fined or if so, how much. But recent financial penalties for local authorities for data breaches have in some cases exceeded £100,000. Central Bedfordshire Council's new Director of Children's Services, Sarah Jane Smedmore, has just taken up her role as a local authority. A council spokesman said, Central Bedfordshire Council takes its responsibility of looking after people's personal data extremely seriously and our employees receive regular training around protecting personal and sensitive information. Regrettably, we were made aware of the data being accidentally released through a public website on Monday, May the 9th in the afternoon, but our officers worked swiftly to get the information removed. We're extremely sorry to all those affected and we're in the process of contacting the families to apologise directly. If we get any update on this from Central Bedfordshire Council or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Following our article last week about the possibility of GDPR Plus and the effect that it would have on health data, a disturbing report has been released this week showing that hundreds of organisations, including drug companies, private healthcare providers and universities, have breached data sharing agreements but not had their access to patient data withdrawn. High-risk breaches were revealed to have included pharmaceutical giants and educational institutions, including Virgin Care, GlaxoSmithKline and Imperial College London, during audits by NHS Digital, according to an investigation by the British Medical Journal, the BMJ. This means these organisations were handing information outside the remit agreed in data contracts and may be failing to protect confidentiality, the journal said. In one instance, local NHS commissioners allowed sensitively identifiable patient data to be released to Virgin Care without permission from NHS Digital. When auditors tried to get access to Virgin Care to check their compliance, they were denied access for several weeks and the company refused to delete the patient data. Records about mental health, including children and young people, those with learning disabilities, diagnostic imaging and other confidential patient data was being processed outside the scope of objectives agreed with NHS Digital at an address that had not been agreed and without a data sharing contract. A spokesperson for Virgin Care said it had robust data protection in place. It is outrageous that private companies and university research teams are failing to comply, said Tinsley Manning, the former chair of NHS Digital. How is it that these organisations can be so lax with data? The BMJ's analysis of NHS digital audits found that in the past year, 33 organisations were audited and each one had breached data sharing agreements. Hundreds more have been found in breach since audits began in 2015. Smith was found to be at high risk regarding compliance, duty of care, confidentiality and integrity by NHS digital auditors in December 2021. It had breached the terms of its data sharing agreement with NHS digital in 10 ways, including allowing four unauthorised GSK data analysts in North America to access the patient data. GlaxoSmithKline also processed and stored NHS patient data in locations that had not been declared. A GlaxoSmithKline spokesperson said the company had worked hard to ensure that all their recent audit findings had been fully addressed, adding this is reflected by NHS Digital's decision to reassess GlaxoSmithKline's risk rating as low. At Imperial College, a health research unit was also deemed high risk in August 2021. Identifiable sensitive personal data was not encrypted while in transit between the primary data centre and the backup site. Two doctoral students were also given unauthorised access to the data supplied by NHS Digital. Imperial College London said it fully accepted the findings of the audit 
and had quickly put in place an action plan to tackle the matters raised. None of the organisations had their access to NHS Digital's data curtailed in light of the breaches. NHS Digital said it was working with the organisations to rectify problems. These breaches will damage public trust that data is being handled safely and securely, said Natalie Banner, the former lead for Understanding Patient Data Initiative hosted by Wellcome. The current system is failing to protect data adequately and a major policy shift in investment is needed. Phil Booth, coordinator of campaigning group Med Confidential, called for real consequences if the companies, commissioners and research teams breach their agreements, warning that breaches of data sharing contracts would otherwise be meaningless. He said, these contractual requirements aren't just for fun. A single data breach could include sensitive information about millions of patients. An NHS digital spokesperson said, we take our responsibility to safeguard data very seriously and it is only ever shared with organisations that have a legal basis and a legitimate need to use it to improve health and care services, including medical research. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Scotland now and Nicola Sturgeon has been accused of creating a bullies charter after using data protection laws to suggest the outcome of allegations against a former SNP minister may be kept secret. A bit of history, in 2020, the then Rural Economy and Tourism Secretary, Fergus Ewing, was the subject of a bullying complaint by civil servants. At the time, a spokesperson for Mr Ewing said the SNP MSP completely rejected the claims. Reports suggest the investigation which was escalated into a formal process has now been completed, but the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has refused to comment on the outcome, pointing to GDPR rules, fueling the prospect that outcomes of any bullying complaints may never be made public. But SNP MP Joanna Cherry has called for outcomes of any bullying claims in the public domain to be made public. Writing on Twitter, Ms Cherry said, Bullying is a significant issue in politics. Of course, all allegations should be investigated, and if the fact there is an allegation is in the public domain, the outcome of the investigation should be made public. That's only fair to everyone concerned. Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa pressed the First Minister over the investigation into Mr Ewing, initially asked her in general how many probes into current or former ministers are underway, how many have concluded and what the outcomes have been. In response to the First Minister's questions, Nicola Sturgeon insisted she was not in a position to get into these issues because she claimed there were very considerable legal data protection issues that I am bound by. She said that governments have a duty of transparency, but governments also have a duty to abide by the law on privacy and data protection. A complaint by its nature includes personal data of both the complainant and the person complained about. This further information can only be made available out within the narrow confines of the complaint if there's a lawful basis within GDPR to do so. Yes, there's a duty to transparency, but it's also a duty to abide by the law. But Mr Sarwa stressed that no one's asking the First Minister to reveal confidential details, but said there is a need for government to reveal the outcome and to prove into Mr Ewing. The Labour leader pointed to words made by SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford in relation to allegations against UK Home Secretary Priti Patel, where he stressed the importance to lead by example. Mr Sarwa said, After the allegations against Alex Salmond and then Derek Mackay and the bullying findings against UK government ministers, we need to restore trust in politics, then that must start with complaints being handled transparently. Will she today confirm the outcome, not the personal details, the outcome of the bullying investigation into Fergus Ewing? Can she confirm if there's been any other investigations into current and former Scottish ministers and will she commit to make public conclusion of any complaints upheld against ministers in this government? Ms Sturgeon insisted that she and her government take any complaints about any ministers very seriously. She added, There is evidence by both the development of the publication of the updated procedure of handling complaints made by civil servants, either about current or about former ministers. 
This is not a question about any complaints if they're raised, not being investigated, but that has to be done within the law. If I answer on this, I will be at risk of breaching the law. Mr Sarwa stressed that the public deserves to know the outcome of an investigation relating to ministers and the SNP government, adding it was an issue of public transparency. He said it is indicative of a wider culture and the culture of secrecy and cover-ups at the heart of this government. Instead, the First Minister has hidden behind GDPR and refused to come clean as the outcome of the investigation into Fergus Ewing. The public deserves to know the outcome of this investigation as a matter of transparency. This lack of transparency is creating a bully's charter and allowing senior officials off the hook. The fact that Nicholas Sturgeon can't escape from is that her government and the SNP operate in a culture of secrecy and cover-up. Mr Sawa added cover-ups when it comes to awarding the government contracts, cover-ups when it comes to the deaths of the children in hospital, and culture as contempt for journalists and anyone who dare ask a difficult question as his First Minister. After 15 years of being in government, why does Nicholas Sturgeon think it's one standard for her and another standard for everyone else? Asked by journalists about the complaints, Deputy First Minister John Sweeney, who is the lead minister on the government's new harassment policy, repeated Nicola Sturgeon's argument that the government is obliged to follow the law. He said he has set out in significant detail to Holyrood committees an open and transparent approach to handling of complaints within the Scottish government. Mr Sweeney added, We have set out an open policy and it's been scrutinised by Parliament but fundamentally government must comply with the rules of GDPR in all circumstances. Mr Ewing was not available for comment. <laughs> News about the ICO itself now, and the Information Commissioner's Office has reduced its IT spending by £1.2 million over two years, despite a surging demand for technology during the pandemic. The ICO's budget was most recently cut from £5,379,990 for the fiscal year 2019-20, to £5,250,720 in the financial year 2021, according to data obtained through a Freedom of Information request and analysed by the Parliament Street Think Tank. However, the most significant cut came during the financial year 21-22, when the ISCO's IT budget was slashed to £4,122,045. This means that spending was reduced by 23%, almost a quarter, in two years, despite the ICO's February 2021 spending forecast predicting that the IT budget would marginally increase by the year end due to some increased hardware spend. In September 2021, the ICO also invested in a new digital assistant chatbot to help guide customers through the data protection free paying journey. Despite answering a record 33,773 queries in the first month since launching, interest in the chatbots has since waned answering only 6,560 queries in April 2022. The ICO wasn't immediately able to comment on the reason behind its IT spending cuts. The watchdog is largely funded through data protection fees, which account for around 85 to 90% of its income. The remaining 10 to 15% is sourced through grants provided by the UK government. The ICO's IT budgets are largely in line with predictions published in Dartner in August 2021, when a technological research and consulting firm stated that despite global IT spending exceeding pre-pandemic levels in 2022, the pace of government IT spending was slowed down. Gartner researchers also found that IT infrastructure and applications modernisation, as well as digital government transformation, are the key areas that are set to fuel government IT spending in 2022. The pandemic has served to boost the pace of digital transformation in the public sector, with Gartner estimating that by 2025, more than half of government agencies were modernised critical core legacy applications. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon.
to Central America now, and we often talk about organisations or companies being affected by ransomware attacks, but seldom do we talk about a whole country being affected by a ransomware attack, but that's what's happened in Costa Rica. Costa Rica has declared a state of emergency following the 20 ransomware attack, and the USA has released a $10 million bug bounty for information on the attackers. The newly inaugurated president of Costa Rica, Rodrigo Chavez Robles, reportedly declared a state of emergency on a Sunday after the country's government had been hit by Tonti ransomware last month. This is one of the first executive decrees the president has signed after beginning his presidency on the 8th of May. It mandates the need for Costa Rica to invest in cybersecurity and respond to the ongoing attack. The first entity to be hit was the Treasury on the 18th of April, although the full impact of the ransomware is still unknown. It's been without any kind of digital services, meaning its processes have been forced to be completed manually. On the 6th of May, the US Department of State also posted a $10 million bounty for information leading to the identification or location of any individuals who hold a key leadership position in the 20 ransomware group. The department is also offering a reward of $5 million US million for information leading to the arrest and or conviction of any individual in any country conspiring to participate in a 20 ransomware incident. It underlined that the group attacked Costa Rica in April, impacting the country's foreign trade by disrupting its customs and taxes platforms. We've signed a decree so the country can defend against a criminal attack that cyber criminals are carrying out, added Chavez. This is an assault on the nation and we've signed a decree to help us defend ourselves better. Conti has released a statement about the attack online where it said that Costa Rica could have avoided this by paying a $10 million ransom. The post was also indicated that around 97% of the stolen data has been published so far, with around 672 gigabytes of information taken. You also need to know that no organised team was created for this attack. No government of other countries has finalised this attack. Everything was carried out by me with a successful affiliate. My name is UNC1756, stated the message. The purpose of this attack was to earn money in the future. I would definitely carry out attacks in a more serious format with a larger team. Costa Rica is a demo version. The message contained links to four Costa Rican websites, the Treasury, the Ministry of Work and Social Security, the Social Development and Family Allowances Fund, and SIUA, a local university. In February, a Ukrainian cyber researcher unveiled data belonging to the Tonti ransomware chain. Indeed, we brought you news of that here on the GPL Weekly Show. The researcher had access to the group systems and released the data after the chain declared its support for Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. It includes Bitcoin addresses, chat logs, and negotiations between ransomware victims and Tonti attackers. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Poland now, and a decision on the 19th of January 2022 by the president of the PDPO, their equivalent of the ICO, placing a ministry fine of 4,911,732 Polish zlotys on Fortnum Marketing and Sales Polska SA as data controller, and a fine of 250,135 Polish zlotys on Pika SP as a processor. In this case, the president of the PDPO imposed the highest fine yet imposed on a data controller in Poland. This is an important decision, both because of outsourcing services and service providers, and where the liability lies as to whether your data processors are GDPR compliant or not, if you are the data controller. And this is continuing a trend which we've seen across Europe and indeed in the UK now, where the data protection authorities, whether that be the ICO in the case of the UK or the PDPO in the case of Poland, 
are relying on organizations and companies as data controllers to check the GDPR compliance of their data processes and holding those data controllers liable if the data processes are not GDPR compliant. In this particular case, in April 2020, the controller, Fortner Marketing, notified the president of the PDPO of a data breach reporting that the data of the controller's customers had been copied in the course of changes in the information and technology environment in a document digital filing system supplied by Pika SP0. In April 2020, Fortnum reported the data breach to the president, stating that Fortnum customer data had been copied. The incident was connected with modifications of an IT environment for the service provided by Pika to streamline the entire document filing system. The breach concerned a new database containing Fortnum customer information such as first name, surname, residential address, personal civil identification number, identification document type and number, email address, telephone number, number and address of place of supply and agreement details such as the agreement date and number, the type of fuel and the meter number. It was stated that 137,314 people were affected by the breach. At first, the PDPO launched an investigation regarding Fortnum by itself. In response to a notice, Fortnum explained that Peter had not consulted Fortnum on the changes made and the manner in which they were made. Fortnum's relationship with Peter was based on an agreement for storage, document archiving and associated services concluded in 2016 and on a data processing agreement of May 2018. In a response of June 2018 to questions posed by the regulator, the controller explained that prior to the agreement engaged in a processor being included, it did not take additional steps to verify the processor because Fortnum had been doing business with Pika for many years and it was the archiving and digitization service market leader. No security incidents had occurred up till this time. Fortnum acknowledged that it had not exercised its right of inspection with regard to Pika as provided for in Article 28, Paragraph 3, Subparagraph H of GDPR in May 2020, and thus after the breach had been discovered, the controller sent a questionnaire to the processor, which was the first step of the verification process. Fortnum stated in June 2020 that when making the change, Pika did not follow the established procedures and did not submit a conceptual plan of the changes or functional or technical plans to the controller. Fortnum reported that the software was not working properly, Pika found the cause and commenced measures to solve the problem without consulting Fortnum. Next, the president of the PDPO sent a notice to Peter of July 2020 stating that it had been classified as a party to the ongoing administrative proceedings. When submitting explanations, Peter informed that it had not consulted the controller on the changes made to the software. The PDPO made the following findings in the decision of 19th of January 2022. Fortum was in breach of Article 5, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph F, Article 24, Paragraph 1, Article 25, Paragraph 1, Article 28, Paragraph 1, and Article 32, Paragraphs 1 and 2 of GDPR due to failure to implement the appropriate technical and organisational measures to protect personal data resulting in a data breach, failure to verify a processor, or also, for instance, failure to determine whether the processor sufficiently ensured the appropriate technical and organisational measures were taken to render processing compliant with GDPR and protect the rights of data subjects. PICA was in breach of Article 32, Paragraph 1 and 2, and Article 32, Paragraph 1 and 2, in conjunction with Article 28, Paragraph 3, Subparagraph C and F of GDPR, due to failure to implement the appropriate technical and organisational measures to protect personal data and to prevent a data breach. The regulator determined the following. Insufficient safeguards were in place to protect the database in which personal data was processed, leading to unauthorised disclosure. 
There is no systemization of personal data in the new created database, and this, combined with a failure to ensure other effective safeguards, has led to the data breach. Peter's policies did not contain specific provisions on the procedure for making changes to IT systems used to process personal data. Peter's method of keeping records of work for customers in the in-house system did not sufficiently protect personal data because the individual stages of the work were not adequately documented. Peter was in breach of the agreement with Fortum on an engagement processor due to failure to implement pseudonization. Peter did not exercise due diligence when placing real personal data into the newly created database. Fortum did not monitor how the changes made as part of the service were in fact being implemented. As the data controller, Fortum was not exempt from personal data protection requirements due to engaging a data processor, and Fortum failed to conduct audits, including inspections of the processor, under Article 28, Paragraph 3, Subparagraph H of GDPR. This is one of the most important security measures, and it's a right connected with the controller's obligation under Article 28, Paragraph 1 of GDPR to select a processor ensuring sufficient guarantees. The PDPO found that both the controller and the processor failed to implement appropriate technical and organisational measures to protect process personal data and thus were in breach of Article 32 of GDPR. The PDPO also found that where parties do business long term without audits or inspections being conducted periodically and systematically, this does not guarantee that the processor duly performs duties required by law and under agreement on engaging a processor. An existing business relationship can only be a starting point for verifying a processor. The conclusion of agreement on engaging a processor without proper verification does not sufficiently comply with controller's obligations under Article 28, Paragraph 1 of GDPR. This has raised some important issues with regard to data controllers and their overview of data processors, and it's doubtless something we will return to in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. We mentioned in last week's GDPR Weekly Show that we expected there to be a data reform bill in the Queen's speech on Tuesday, and indeed that proved to be the case. Speaking at Tech Monitor's Digital Responsibilities Symposium last week, Data Minister John Whittingdale said that the government plans to remove the cumbersome aspects of GDPR that have made people risk averse when it comes to sharing data. Other experts at the event agreed that UK GDPR is needing some modifications, but called on the government to make sure that the benefits of data sharing are enjoyed by the whole of society. They added that the UK reforms could influence the evolution of data rules around the world, as indeed GDPR has been adopted as the basic model by many countries around the world, which you'll know if you've been a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show. In the speech to Parliament, Prince Charles laid out the government's intentions in a wide range of areas, including data. The United Kingdom's data protection regime will be reformed, he said. Details of the proposed changes have yet to be revealed, but Sky News reported earlier this week that a draft bill could emerge in a matter of weeks. The bill, of course, follows the consultation that closed last autumn and which we've referred to several times here on the GDPR Weekly Show. The UK government has made clear its intention to move away from EU GDPR since leaving the EU and hopes to establish a more agile regime. Proponents of the change, including Chancellor Rishi Sunak, believe the UK can set its own data laws without endangering its data adequacy agreement with the EU, which allows data to flow between companies in the UK and the EU. However, as we've previously said here on the GDPR Weekly Show, that could be a risky move, because if the EU feels the UK government plans do not protect the data of its citizens sufficiently, the adequacy agreement could be revoked. When questioned, John Whittingdale, Minister of State for Media and Data, said the government is not set on dismantling GDPR. We continue to agree with the principles that underlie GDPR, 
but we believe there are opportunities to deliver that standard data protection in a less burdensome and obstructive way, which is why we've embarked on a programme of reform, he explained. Wissendale added that the government's view is that GDPR has made people risk-averse. One of the things we're keen to address is that people become quite risk-averse because of the complications of GDPR and the different provisions, and they therefore tended to err on the side of caution and not share data, he said. We think there's a lot of scope to clarify how the rules operate and remove some of the more cumbersome aspects. He added that UK GDPR reforms could help the government strike data sharing agreements with other countries around the world, which would enable more data to flow freely. The EU has been slow to reach data transfer agreements with third countries. We want to do that quickly and will allow data to flow between us and them without impediment, Wissendale said. It's a big programme. A lot of it will require legislation. When we have further updates from the UK government, we will, of course, bring them to you right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. To Canada now, and the Ontario Provincial Police have confirmed that the agency is investigating a major data breach affecting 1,200-plus regulated cannabis stores in the Canadian province. Ontario's retail cannabis sector is reeling after it was revealed that the government-run Ontario Cannabis Store, OCS, the province's legal wholesaler of adult-use marijuana, lost track of a significant amount of data for at least one month. The leaked data is said to include the sales of every cannabis store in the province for December 2021, as well as store name, respective license numbers, kilograms sold that month, kilograms sold per day, total units sold, total inventory at the end of the month, plus each store's sales rebate, amongst others. Stores have expressed concern that the leaked information might increase security risk because the public could calculate approximately how much inventory each store carries day to day. I can confirm that Ontario Provincial Police is conducting the investigation, the spokesman said. If our investigation does determine that charges are warranted, they will be laid. The spokesperson wouldn't comment any further. The data leak was publicly acknowledged by the Alcohol and Daming Commission of Ontario in a tweet on Tuesday, in which the provincial cannabis store regulator denied its involvement in the leak. The AGCO tweeted that the Investigation Enforcement Bureau, an integrated bureau within the AGCO, and composed of Ontario Provincial Police officers, has been working with the OCS regarding the leak. Hours earlier, at 1.52pm Eastern Time, the OCS sent emails to retailers informing them that confidential OCS stores data is being circulated in the industry. It is not known when the OCS became aware of the data breach. In its email to retailers, the OCS said it took immediate steps to address the situation, including restricting access to internal data reports, commence an investigation to identify the source of the leak and notifying the Ontario Provincial Police. The leak is the latest blow for Ontario's cannabis retail sector, which is suffering from a glut of competition, falling prices and a widespread concern over pending store closures. If we get any update on this, we will speak to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To New Zealand now, and AA Traveller says the data breach has affected hundreds of thousands of customers. Hackers have taken names, addresses, contact details and expired credit card numbers from the AA Traveller website used between 2003 and 2018. AA Travel and Tourism General Manager Greg Layton said the data was taken in August last year and AA Traveller only found out in March. He said a lot of the data was not needed anymore so it should have been deleted and the breach could have been prevented. You should be able to give your data in for that to be secure. We understand that and respect that and I'd have been incredibly sorry. Leighton said cyber security experts reviewed the breach and interpreted that the vulnerability definitely was there and there was some data that was extracted from the server. 
He said the site was then secured to ensure there's no further risk or vulnerability to individuals concerned. AA Traveller is contacting all customers affected this week. The association also identified in 2010 that 30,000 people who'd taken part in an online AA Travel New Zealand survey were at risk of being hacked in an, by an overseas account. Users were all sent an email informing them and telling them to change their password. Leighton said, These characters, the hackers, are always looking for access points. It's just one of those things that occur and it's very frustrating. But we should not have this happen. We're constantly looking at our security settings. We've certainly learned a great deal from this. The AA is now checking technology for vulnerabilities and ensuring data is basically eliminated where it's no longer required. Leighton said it was unclear where the hackers were based. Acting Privacy Commissioner Liz McPherson said that if data was not needed, it should be deleted. The key lesson was for companies to minimise the data collected as it did not take much information for someone to manufacture an identity. She said the leading cause for data breaches was still human error. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Staying in the Southern Hemisphere, but to South Africa now, and DISCAM has confirmed that an unauthorised party gained access to a database containing the personal information of more than 3.6 million people, which could be used for criminal activities such as phishing attacks. The information includes first names and surnames, email addresses and telephone numbers. After investigating a suspected data compromise suffered by one of our third-party service providers and operators, we hereby confirm that certain personal information was accessed by an unauthorised person on or about April 28, 2022, the pharmacy retailer said in a statement. This chem said the data breach was brought to its attention on May the 1st. We immediately commenced an investigation into the matter and to ensure that the appropriate steps were taken to prevent any further incidents. The retailer explained it had contracted a third-party service provider and operator for certain managed services. The operator then developed a database for DISCAM, which contained categories of personal information necessary for the services offered by DISCAM. Upon being made aware of the incident, we immediately commenced an investigation into the matter and to ensure the appropriate steps were taken to prevent any further incidents. Our investigation has revealed that the incident affected a total of 3,687,881 data subjects. Names, email addresses and mobile numbers were compromised. Please note there's currently no indication that any personal information has been published or misused as a result of the incident. We stress that no identification numbers, medical, financial or banking information was contained in this database. However, we cannot guarantee that this position will remain the same in the future. Therefore, out of an abundance of caution, we are providing information about the incident as well as the remedial action taken to mitigate against any further adverse consequences of the incident. However, the retailer cautioned, based on categories of personal information impacted, there's a possibility that any impacted personal information may be used by an unauthorised party to commit further criminal activities, such as phishing attacks, email compromises, social engineering and or impersonation attempts. For example, it may be cross-referenced with information compromised in other third-party cyber incidents for the further perpetration of crime against data subjects. This then recommends that those who may be affected by the breach do not click on any suspicious links, refrain from disclosing any passwords or pins via email, text or social media platforms, change your passwords often and ensure there's complexity in the configuration, ensure regular antivirus and malware scans are performed on any electronic devices and check that your software is up to date and only provide personal information when there's a legitimate reason to do so. While investigations into the incident are still ongoing, the operator has confirmed it has deployed additional safeguards in order to ensure protection and security of information on the database. These safeguards include, but are not limited to, enhanced access management protocols to the database. 
We are not aware of any actual misuse or publication of personal information from the personal information that may have been acquired. We are, however, continuing with the assistance of external specialists to undertake web monitoring, including the dark web, for any publication of personal information relating to the incident. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To America now, and the SolarWinds data breach of 2020 was one of the most widespread and sophisticated hacking campaigns to be conducted against the federal government and the private sector. As early as January 2019, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service breached the computing networks at SolarWinds, a Texas-based network management software company. Since the company's software, SolarWinds Orion was widely used in the federal government to monitor network activity and manage network devices on federal systems, the incident allowed the threat actor to breach several federal agencies' networks. After the SolarWinds attack became public in late 2020, the value of SolarWinds stock on the public market decreased in one week, from almost $25 per share to less than $15 per share, at a decline of approximately 40%. In the aftermath of the loss in share value, a class of SolarWinds shareholders sued the company, its executives and its investors for violations of the Exchange Act, which prohibits public corporations and their leaders from knowingly making misrepresentations or omissions that cause financial harm. In late March, a Texas judge dismissed claims that former SolarWinds Chief Executive Officer CEO Kevin Thompson was personally liable for deceiving investors about the state of the company's cybersecurity and allowed the class action lawsuit to proceed. The lawsuit names Thompson, Chief Financial Officer Jay Barton Kauzu, Chief Information Security Officer Tim Brown, and private equity firms Thomas Bravo and Siler Lake Technology Management as defendants. The suit also alleges the company lied and materially misled investors about security practices leading up to the breach. Furthermore, the complaint claims each defendant was directly involved in day-to-day operations at the highest level and therefore privy to confidential information about business operations and oversight of internal controls. By admitting what they knew about the breach and employing poor security practices, the lawsuit alleges that SolarWinds executives were reckless and participated in a fraudulent scheme. The lawsuit is a stark reminder of the damaging consequences that a data breach can have on an organisation. A spokesperson for SolarWinds made the following statement, We disagree strongly with the claims made by the plaintiff and look forward to having the opportunity to present the true facts as the process continues beyond its current very early stage. Last week here on the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of the regulator in India introducing a new six-hour data breach reporting window. Perhaps not surprisingly, this week there's been some opposition to that from industry bodies within India. Just to recap, CERT-IN, the Indian body, requires Indian organisations to report more than 20 types of infosec incidents within six hours of discovery, and it rates a ransomware attack, detection of a potentially malicious network probe and a hijacked social media account on the same level of seriousness. Other requirements include the capture and retention of VPN users' personal information and even the IP addresses used to access the services. Organisations are also required to retain log files for 180 days and share them with CERT-IN if the team deems them necessary for an investigation. Indian organisations have been given just 60 days to be ready for the requirements. Concern about the rules has been voiced both inside and outside India, the latter typified by global tech lobby group the Information Technology Council, sending CERT-IN a letter that suggests a six-hour reporting requirement is simply not feasible and also not aligned with global best practice of 72-hour reporting. The ITI stated that the 180-day log file requirement is not best practice and suggested that a list of reportable incidents is far too broad 
as it includes everyday occurrences. It would not be useful, it added, for companies also IN to spend time gathering, transmitting, receiving and storing such a large volume of insignificant information that arguably will never be followed up on. Requirement for all Indian organisations to use local network time servers also came in for criticism. VPN providers have predictably opposed the rules on grounds that they invade users' privacy. One such provider, Proton VPN, openly offers procedures for India-based users to work around the rules. India's Internet Freedom Foundation has offered an extensive criticism of the regulations, arguing that they were formulated and announced without consultation, lack of a data breach reporting mechanism that would benefit end users, and include data localization requirements that would prevent some cross-border data flows. The Foundation also points out the privacy implications of the rules, especially five-year retention of personal information. It's a very significant requirement at a time when India's draft data protection bill has proven so controversial it's failed to reach a vote in Parliament and debate about digital privacy in India is ongoing. It's been reported that one way to report security incidents to CERT-IN involves a non-interactive PDF that has to be printed out and filled in by hand. It's also been pointed out that the requirement to report incidents as trivial as port scanning has not been explained. Nor does it say, in that case, is it one PDF per IP address scanned, or can one report cover many IP addresses? CERT-IN said it wanted a new reporting to improve its analytical capabilities, but has not explained how analogue reports will help it to build up a better incident database. We've approached CERT-IN for some explanations on some of these points, but as of the time of broadcast, they have not yet come back to us. When they do come back to us, we will, of course, bring you an update right here on the next available episode of the GDPR Week Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. Returning to the US now and to Cincinnati, where about 2,000 current employees and their dependents plus an unknown number of former employees for the city of Cincinnati were impacted by a data breach involving census data. The city discovered on April 19th in the request for a proposal for dental and vision services inadvertently included census data and posted it on the city's procurement websites. The request for proposals was originally posted on April the 8th this year. Both personal information and protected house information, including names, home addresses, demographics and insurance information, were shown in the census files. In some cases, social security numbers, dental claims and dates of birth were also included. The city of Cincinnati say the credit card, banking and test result information was not released. The breach only affected those with vision and dental insurance through the city. In a press release, the city of Cincinnati said this was not the result of a cybersecurity breach and the city has no reason to believe any information was actually compromised or misused. However, the city is approaching this with an abundance of caution as privacy is of the utmost importance. As a result of the breach, the city is reviewing its policies and processes for requests for proposals and sensitive information training. The city will also be implementing additional training. The city of Cincinnati confirmed that the incident is being reported to the Department of Health and Human Services. Back in episode 182 of the GGPR Weekly Show, we brought in news of the data breach at Umbrella Company Parasol. This week it's emerged that Optionist Group is denying responsibility for the data breach that led to tens of thousands of contractors having their personal information shared on the dark web. The group, which owns the Parasol Umbrella Company and several contractor-focused accountancy firms, is a subject of group action that's seeking compensation for contractors whose personal data was compromised by the breach which came to light in February this year. The action has been overseen by London-based law firm Keller Lenkner, 
and was launched soon after it emerged that Optionist Group had suffered a low breach linked to a suspected ransomware attack on its system five weeks before. As we previously reported, the data breach resulted in a sizable dump of personal information emerging on the dark web. Blonde contractors who were either employed by Optionist umbrella companies or relied on its accountancy firms. Despite assurances from Optionist that it would notify any contractor that his personal information had been compromised as a result of the breach in a timely manner, this did not happen. During the intervening months, the teller length of group action has rumbled on with the law firm issuing a statement in April this year confirming that its investigation into the breach showed it had grounds to accuse the company of being in flagrant breach of GDPR. The statement also said victims of the breach had a solid and winnable case, prompting Telelangna to issue a notice of potential claim against Optionist. However, it appears that Optionist disagrees. Telelangna said, We have now received a response from solicitors Pinsent Mason, who are working for Optionist. They have denied any liability to pay any compensation and refused to provide requested documents. As a result, the Telelangna email confirmed that the law firm is now preparing a letter of claim to which Optimists will have 21 days to formally respond. Once we have the response, if they maintain a denial, then we'll have to prepare to issue a claim at court, it said. Given the 21-day time frame for response from Optimists, the email concluded by stating that the law firm expects to be in a position to update the group claim participants in mid to late June 2022. In a statement, Optimists said, since the cybersecurity incident we suffered earlier in the year, our top priority as a business has been investigating the precise nature of the information that was copied from our systems during the attack. We have committed considerable resources to this process and there is currently a substantial team conducting a review of the impacted data that will allow us to identify where there is a high risk to any individual. This has been a long and complicated process, however it remains our absolute priority to establish the impact on personal data and to communicate with those affected. We would like to thank our partners, clients and employees for their patience as we continue to respond to this incident. If we get any update either from Teller Lengtner or from Pinson Mason, we will of course speak to you in the next very episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Greece now, and Greece's National Transparency Authority, the NTA, was forced on Friday to remove a report on migrant pushbacks in the Aegean Sea as it was improperly redacted. The authority removed the report, which is posted online on Tuesday, as it failed to properly hide the names and personal details of those who were interviewed during the investigation. Non-government organisations and the media have long accused Greek authorities of illegally turning away asylum seekers who arrive at its borders in a practice known as pushback. The European Commission has repeatedly urged the Greek authorities to create an independent monitoring authority to look into numerous reports of pushbacks. Brussels has set that as a condition for further financing of Coast Guard operations in the eastern Aegean. On March 29th, NTA issued a press release announcing the conclusion of its three-month investigation into Greece's management of migration, launched at a request to the country's migration ministry. The report followed up on the findings of an eight-month journalistic investigation by Lighthouse Reports and nine other European media platforms, which claimed a system of illegal forced returns operated in Greece and Croatia, and alleged special units of the country's security forces were involved. The NTA made the full report public earlier this week, saying its conclusion that it found no evidence of pushbacks and nothing to substantiate the lighthouse allegations, as no supporting evidence or relevant documentation has emerged. But because of the names of the interviewees were improperly redacted, critics of the report argued it was largely based on interviews with police and coastal officers who could potentially be involved in the alleged pushbacks. According to researcher Fevos Simonidis, who first revealed the improper redaction and was able to obtain the full list of those NTA interviews, some 45% of them were police or Coast Guard officials. 
Authorities appear to have spoken with church officials and Greek authorities working on migration. But out of 65 interviewees, only one was a representative of a non-government organisation and only four were migrants. No officials from the UN Refugee Agency were interviewed. Even before the unveiling of the redaction, the NTA report already revealed Lighthouse Report's director, Tlas von Diesen's phone number included at the bottom of supposedly confidential correspondence. We welcome the publication of the full report as we welcome the investigation, Van Diesen said, but the disclosure of personal data and failed effort of redaction has left us with concerns over the conduct of the investigation. The report approved Greek migration policy from the operation of its asylum centres to how it manages illegal migration flows. In every instance, it in every instance of detection of irregular immigrants, the legal provisions are respected throughout the entire operation as provided by national, international and European law. The report made scant mention of Frontex, the EU border management agency that works with the Greek Coast Guard and has been accused of pushbacks. Frontex's former executive director, Fabrice Legeri, recently resigned amid an investigation by OLAF, the EU's anti-fraud office. The Greek government presented Legere with an award earlier this year for his contribution in tackling the migration crisis. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurety production. Until next time, bye-bye.